Well, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us here at TCC at Home. So grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to get together in this format, even though it's not ideal, even though there's a lot that we're work, walking through and, and experiencing right now. Uh, we need uh, this time to, to hear from God, to hear what he has to say to us. And so to my church family, uh, thank you for, for joining us this morning. Just as a reminder, we hope that you not only uh, receive this sermon, but that you also respond in worship. Use the home worship guide. You can find it in the notes section below or at tccannarbor.com backslash live. If you're joining us for the first time or, or stumbled upon us this morning, take a minute to fill out a connect card so we can uh, touch base with you here in the coming days. Uh, but uh, regardless of, of how you got here, if you're watching in your pajamas, if you're on the go, uh, I pray that God uses his word this morning to speak into our lives in the way that, that we need to hear him today. Uh, so before we, we jump in to the message today, I want to invite you to, to pray with me. Take a minute to, to bow your head and, and pray with me this morning. Father, thank you so much for an opportunity to, to now receive your word. God, would you, by your spirit, work in our hearts and our lives to, to bring your, your word home to our hearts. God, challenge us, change us, transform us, make us new uh, this morning by your word. Uh, Lord, we love you. Uh, we give you this time and we pray that you would use it. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. I got to thinking this week uh, about what Jesus and COVID-19 have in common. Uh, you know, as uh, I watch the news, uh, I uh, think about Easter coming up. It seems like uh, it's hard to keep track of, of what day, but Easter is now just two weeks away. When I think about uh, Jesus and COVID-19, I've become convinced over uh, this last week that those two things have this in common. Everybody has an opinion about them. One way or the other, uh, people have an opinion. But one of the things that's become so apparent uh, this week is the need for important, uh, in, is for accurate information. Uh, I, I've been watching uh, online as, as Google and Apple have put out websites to, to give us accurate information about uh, COVID-19 as well as about how to get screened and, and about testing. Uh, and, and these websites are so important because there's so much information. People are hearing things and, uh, and making unwise decisions trying to protect themselves against this virus. And so the thought is if you get accurate information, you can then make an informed decision about how uh, to respond personally. Uh, you need to, uh, to do that in order to protect yourself and to prevent this virus from, from spreading. So the, the thought is accurate knowledge applied personally leads to, to change or protection. I know all the healthcare workers out there would, would probably give that a hearty amen. Uh, but, but in the same way, uh, not to, uh, to just uh, make light of those circumstances, but to, to press into a truth that I think we need to hear this morning. Uh, the same is true, the same formula, if you will, is true for the Christian life. Accurate knowledge uh, of Jesus uh, and a right understanding of God is necessary, uh, but that right understanding of God must then be applied to our lives personally. So right understanding of God with that truth and that knowledge being applied to our lives leads to change. And you know, as Easter approaches us, uh, I want to, to remind us that that Jesus transforms lives. If you know Jesus and have a relationship with him, you will necessarily be changed. That's part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. In ways that we know we need him, we will be changed. In ways that we haven't even thought of yet, we will be changed. That's what it means to walk with Jesus. So this morning, I want 
uh, to, to continue our journey to the cross. Uh, and that journey is going to take us to, to the trials of Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through chapter 23, verses 25. Uh, in these verses, we see the trials of Jesus. And I say trials because there are actually multiple trials that Jesus experiences. After Jesus is betrayed and arrested, uh, he's taken to, uh, to the high priest and to the Sanhedrin and, uh, and stands before the Sanhedrin on trial. And they then take him to Pontius Pilate uh, and he stands before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate kind of passes the buck and then sends Jesus down to Herod. And, and Herod, uh, after a short while with Jesus, sends him back to Pilate. And it's there that Pilate gets the final, gives the final verdict of crucifixion. But the, the question that permeates the trials of Jesus uh, is, is this. Who is Jesus? That's, that's the question. Uh, the, the question is regarding a right understanding of who Jesus is. When the scribes and the, um, the chief priests bring Jesus uh, before them, they, they ask this question. Uh, are you, they say, the Messiah? They want to know. Uh, are you the Messiah? And as, after Jesus responds, they say, so you're saying that you're the Son of God then? The same is true when Jesus stands before Pilate. Pilate asks him, are you indeed King of the Jews? Who is Jesus is the question. And either because of their hard hearts or indifference or, or maybe the pressure to conform to the opinions of, of, of others, every single person in this passage fails to answer the question correctly, fails to appropriately understand and respond, that, respond to that understanding in their lives personally. So we have to ask that question ourselves today. Who is Jesus? Are we responding to who he is? And not only do we have a right knowledge of him, but, but does it make any difference in our life? Uh, every, every Easter, I, I love uh, on the History Channel uh, the different programs that come out to, uh, to talk about Jesus, usually his, his life. Sometimes they delve into issues of his background or his relationship with, with Mary Magdalene or, or, or the disciples, the issues of Jesus' crucifixion and, and the resurrection. And it's always fascinating to, to watch uh, those series over the last few years. There's been a few series that have come out that have been really uh, quality in terms of just their cinematography and, uh, and their retelling uh, of the story from the Gospels. But so often on the History Channel at Easter, the, the question is being asked, who is Jesus? But it's really just an intellectual exercise. Uh, it's really just kind of um, uh, keeping it in, in, the, in a very cerebral uh, sense. And, and in fact, a lot of times when you watch those programs, the, the answer to the question of who is Jesus seems to be determined beforehand with a little bit of a bias against a biblical understanding of Jesus. See, I don't want us to have a History Channel understanding of Jesus. I don't want us just to have a, an intellectual understanding of Jesus, but I want us to press in and, and have a personal understanding of Jesus that changes our lives. So not only do we need to know who is Jesus, but we also need to ask, what difference does Jesus make in our lives? So that's the journey that I want us to go on this morning, looking at Jesus and looking at what difference it makes when we know Jesus. So let's dive into our passage, Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 66. If uh, if you're watching this on our live stream, you can find uh, the passage below and, and check along with us. Or if you have your Bible at home, uh, either a print copy or a digital copy, 
uh, Luke chapter 22, verses 66. I'm going to read verses 66 through 71. It says this, When the day came, the assembly of the elders and of the people gathered together, both the chief priest and the scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it for ourselves from his own lips. The first thing I want you to see here uh, is, is Jesus is our judge who willingly submits himself to the cross. So to, to answer this question of who is Jesus, as we look at his trials, we're, we're seeing in these verses that Jesus is actually our judge, but he does something ex- unexpected. He submits himself willingly to the cross. After Jesus is arrested, he's, he's brought before this group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the highest court uh, in, Judea, in, in Judaism. They, they really are the, the ultimate authority, the most authoritative body in all of Israel. They're, they're made up of experts of the Mosaic law and the chief priests who serve under the high priest. And, and here Jesus is standing before this great uh, authoritative body in Israel and they ask him, are you the Christ? A loaded question. Are you the Messiah, the one promised to come and deliver Israel? And, and Jesus uh, answers here, in a, in a surprising way. We know from the Gospel of Matthew that before they answer this question, they actually brought in some witnesses that actually falsely accuse Jesus. Here Jesus, uh, Luke gets uh, Jesus right to the point. And they ask Jesus this question regarding whether or not he is the Messiah. And Jesus answers in a way that kind of, uh, that, that kind of pushes it back upon them a little bit. He, he says, if I, if I answer... You, you won't believe, and if I ask you, you won't really answer me. He's, he's pointing out their, their loaded question and their bias that they have already uh, determined in their hearts as they ask the question. You see, their vision of, of a Messiah was a conquering warrior who would come in and deliver Israel from their enemies, especially the Romans. The, the role of the Messiah really is a role of authority. It was a role of rule. The Messiah was going to come and establish God's rule. And so in light of all of this, Jesus knows the condition of their heart. He, he knows why they're answering. He knows that this isn't a, a gathering to get justice, but it's a, an expediting of Jesus to the cross. So he, he knows what's taking place here. So instead, he answers by pointing them back to Daniel. To the prophet Daniel in chapter 7 of Daniel, verses 13 through 14, he, he says here in verse 69, alluding to that passage, but from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14 say, um, God, God speaking through Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came on like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, a reference to God, the Son of Man coming to God and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I'm the Son of Man that's referenced in Daniel 7. 
Not, not just one who's come to deliver, but one who has authority. One who is one with God the Father, with the Ancient of Days. And, and what he's saying, you see kind of the, the transition in verse 69. From now on, he says, something's about to change. From their, their, their arrest and, and trying of Jesus to his crucifixion and his resurrection, uh, after this point, Jesus is saying, I will be judge over all. In fact, we could say by virtue of Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus is the rightful judge over everyone. That's the point that we get when we see what Jesus says in verse 69 in light of Daniel 7. Jesus is saying, in light of what's about to take place from now on, after my death and my resurrection, Jesus says, I am the rightful judge over everyone. So in a way, what Jesus is saying to the Sanhedrin is he says, you sit in judgment over me but I'm actually your judge. I'm judge over all, including you. And, and the, the Sanhedrin understand what Jesus is saying. And in verse 70, they say, so you're saying that you're the son of God? They recognize Jesus isn't just talking about being the Messiah come to deliver, but he's talking about having an equality with God, having an authority from God. And, and Jesus responds and he says, you say, that I am. And in doing so, what Jesus does is he actually reveals that the, the Jewish leaders have, have hereby rejected their Messiah. They've rejected the Son of God. But he also does something that's incredibly important for us to see. He willingly submits himself to the cross because it's on the basis of his answer that the Jewish leaders condemn him. They say, What further testimony do we need? We've heard it from his own lips. Jesus condemns himself with his answer. Jesus goes to the cross, not based on some false assumption of who he is, but precisely because of who he is. He is the judge over all who willingly submits himself to the cross. He goes to the cross not because it's according to the plan of the Sanhedrin, but because it's according to the plan of God. Just as we said earlier, the one who is on trial is actually the one who's in charge of the trial. Jesus goes willingly to the cross. You know, now we're on the other side of the cross. We're on the other side of the from now on. From now on is talking about right now. Right now, Jesus is judge over all, including you and including me. And we all have to answer to him. We all have to give an account to him. And we have to ask ourselves, are we prepared for him to be judge over us? Are we prepared to, to give an answer? Are we living today like Jesus truly is the rightful judge over our lives? And, and to connect Jesus being the judge who submits himself to the cross, I, I, you know, as I think about submission, it's kind of a, um, a stuffy, icky word in our culture. We don't, we don't like the idea of submission, but, but Jesus shows us a submission that's beautiful and compelling. The one who has all authority submits himself to the cross. The, the one who is, uh, is rightful to condemn us is condemned for us. What a delight to, to know and, and to give our lives and daily follow the one who could rightfully condemn us but chose to be condemned himself. That, that's who Jesus is. That's what we're seeing here in this passage in the, in the mis- carriage of justice that's unfolding before our eyes, we're actually seeing the, the greatest display 
of God's grace and His love. The, the rightful judge is being condemned for us, willingly submitting Himself to the cross. But we go on. The, the Jewish leaders have a problem. They can't condemn Jesus to the cross. They don't have that authority. So they have to send Jesus to Pilate, who's the prefect over Judea and Samaria, is entrusted by Rome to keep the peace, the Pax Romana in Judea and Samaria. And so after uh, giving their verdict that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy, worthy of death, they have to now take Jesus to Pilate and, and to get Pilate to consent to putting Jesus to death. And look what happens when they come in verse, verse 23. It says that the whole company, all of them came and they brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and that he himself, he's saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. The Jewish leaders are skillful, and they know exactly how to make their point with this Roman leader, with Pilate. They, they bring false accusations about Jesus misleading the people and, and about Jesus forbidding tribute to Caesar. But it's the, the last point that especially catches Pilate's attention. The one who's in charge of keeping peace in Rome uh, and no one um, bucking up against Caesar, they say that Jesus claims to be king of the Jews. He claims to be, a Christ, to be the Christ, a king. And that's what Pilate latches on when he says in verse 3, so are you king of the Jews? Well, that's a, that's a disturbing question. Is someone claiming to be king over Pilate, a king over Caesar? And Jesus is indeed king, but he's a king unlike what any of them expected. And in fact, he pushes back the, the question to Pilate, just like he did to the Sanhedrin. He says, well, you say that I am. What do you think? And in and, and the Gospel of John, we know as Jesus stands before Pilate, John tells us a little bit more about the conversation that he has with Pilate. In, in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. In fact, Jesus is going to establish his kingdom, not by fighting, but by laying down his life. Not, not by battle, but by sacrificing himself on our behalf. Yes, I am a king, but not like the king that perhaps you expect Jesus is the king who goes to the cross. He's the Messiah who suffers. But what's abundantly clear in our passage is not only that Jesus is going to, uh, to go to the cross and to suffer, but that he's going as one who is innocent. Jesus, we see in this passage in verses 1 through 25, took our place though he was innocent. Not only is he the judge over all who submitted himself to the cross, but Jesus takes our place though he's innocent. And this point is pressed home by, by Pilate in verse 4 where he says to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. He's innocent. But they press even further. They say he stirs up trouble throughout Judea and, and Galilee. And, and Pilate hears Galilee and he thinks, oh, here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity to kick the can down the line. The, the Tetrarch of Galilee, Herod Antipas, just happens to be in town. I'll send Jesus to Herod, Pilate thinks. 
I think he's innocent, but I'll send him down to Herod. And so Jesus is sent down to Herod. And we see in verse 6 that uh, Pilate heard this and, and thinks that he's a Galilean and requests from the crowd, from the, from the Jewish leaders to confirm this. And so he sends him to, to Herod. And it says in verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, but Jesus made no answer. And the chief priest and the scribes stood there vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him and then arrayed him in splendid clothing and sent him back to Pilate. You know, as a side note, when you look at Herod and, and Jesus' interaction with Herod, it, it's... It's slightly different than his interaction with the Jewish leaders and, and Pilate. It, Herod sticks out here because he's not really interested in who Jesus is. All, all the other parties ask that question of who is Jesus. Herod presumes that he knows who Jesus is. Uh, he was acquainted with John the Baptist. In fact, he had had John the Baptist's head cut off. And, and, and he wanted to see some sign done by Jesus. He had, he had heard about Jesus and, and, and wanted, to, uh, wanted Jesus to impress him. But he wasn't really interested in who Jesus is. And so as Jesus comes before Herod and Herod questions him, Jesus makes no answer. And just like Jesus said before the Jerusalem leaders, before the uh, Jewish leaders, that, that he was the, the son of man promised in the, the prophet Daniel here in his interaction with Herod, we see that Jesus is the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 7. It says that the suffering servant, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Luke is showing us that Jesus is that suffering servant from Isaiah 53. He's the one who, though innocent, suffers on our behalf. And so after... After asking and, and questioning Jesus and mocking him and, and beating him and accusing him, Herod loses his interest and sends Jesus back to Pilate. But Pilate makes clear once Jesus gets back that both he and Herod have come to the same conclusion. Look down in verses 13 through 14. Once Jesus comes back to, um, to Pilate, Pilate calls together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and says to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Nor did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. We see here Jesus was, was innocent. He had no sin or charge that could be brought against him. Pilate intended to punish Jesus and, and release him. He, he's, he's presented here not as one who's guilty, but one who is innocent and yet accused. The innocent one, Pilate intends to deliver, but we see in verse 18, the crowds press on. They say, give us Barabbas. Pilate uh, we see from, from the other Gospels, had a tradition of releasing a criminal during the time of the Passover, uh, a Jewish person during the crime, time of the Passover. And, and here, Pilate doesn't explain that. The crowds just are asking for us, give us the criminal, give us Barabbas, who is a murderer and an insurrectionist, who, who had caused all kinds of trouble and had even taken someone's life. They want Barabbas over Jesus. 
So they demand and they keep on demanding. And, and Pilate insists, I found in verse 22, as the crowd yell, crucify, crucify him. Pilate for a third time says, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. He's innocent. And yet they demand more. They were urgent, verse 23, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And it says, and their voices prevailed. Perhaps the most sobering statement. Their voices prevailed. Crucify, crucify, crucify him. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Jesus took our place even though he was innocent. He had no charge or sin that could be brought against him, but, but here we see at the heart of the gospel is substitution. The heart of the gospel is substitution, Jesus in our place. Just think about this for a moment. It's not that they got the wrong man in our passage. It's not, that, not, not about Jesus being falsely accused, though he was. The reality is they got the perfect man. They got God's man who was given for us the perfect substitute who goes to the cross in our place for our sin. The, the innocent one, the one innocent of sin dies in the place of those guilty of sin. The Bible says this is the righteous for the unrighteous, the godly for the ungodly. This is the gospel. Jesus dying as our substitute on the cross. As our substitute, he took all our sin upon himself and then gave us life and righteousness. This is the hope of the gospel. You know, as we look at this picture of substitution that's presented here in such a striking way, we, we know as we hear the gospel that Jesus died in our place, but, but just think about the way it's demonstrated here. It's, it's Barabbas in exchange for Jesus, the insurrectionist and the murderer doesn't get the guilt, uh, isn't, isn't given the, the guilty verdict he deserves. The one who is innocent gets it instead. This is substitutionary sacrifice, the heart of the gospel. You know, and sometimes in our culture, we think about the idea of substitution. We kind of push back on it. It sounds maybe antiquated. And, and we ask ourselves, like, is this was this necessary? Did, isn't there a better way that God could have done this? I mean, so some people call this divine child abuse, that, that Jesus is going to the cross, dying in our place as a sacrifice for sin. That, that seems barbaric. Why do, we, why do we have to have that? Some people want to look at this and say, well, it's, it's metaphorical or it's symbolic of, of Jesus' example. But the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. It, it, it continually says that Jesus dies in our place. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Bible tells us that there's no forgiveness without sacrifice, without the shedding of blood. We know that to be true. The Bible tells us that Jesus had to become like us to become a sacrifice that was sufficient to take away our sin. But, but I want to I bring up a different point. I, I think if we, if we really think about it, all of us know that love requires sacrifice. Love, in fact, not only requires sacrifice, but it requires substitutionary sacrifice. It requires us putting ourselves in the place and bearing the weight of something for another. Tim Keller has helped me think through this point. He, he describes all love as substitutionary sacrifice. 
Think about if you were to love somebody who is emotionally vulnerable, love somebody who's an emotionally broken person, and you yourself want to remain intact. Look, that's reality. That's all of us, emotionally vulnerable and broken. If you're truly going to engage them and love them, you're going to have to suffer some measure of emotional vulnerability yourself. You're going to have to uh, be broken in some way yourself. If it's them or you, if you stay afloat and are held together, then, then they don't. You have to give of yourself in order to love. If you were to take in somebody whose life was in danger, you can't give them safety and security unless you lose some type of safety and security yourself. By taking them in whose lives is in danger, you in turn are perhaps taking upon some risk yourself in order to love them. And perhaps one that hits close to home to me, I think about parenting and raising children. If I'm to raise children in a way who have freedom and independence, then I'm going to have to give up my freedom and independence for years upon years. It's either me or them. My love requires substitutionary sacrifice. We all have experienced receiving substitutionary sacrifice from someone else or, or have been the giver of that type of love. And what Jesus shows us here is that he's not some example of love, but he himself is substituting himself in our place for our sin. You can't have a loving God without substitutionary sacrifice. We, we want a loving God. God is love. And he is, but he demonstrated his love through himself in our place. Substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus in your place is God's megaphone shouting, I love you. Did you hear that? Jesus in your place is God's megaphone shouting, I love you. So, so this is who Jesus is that we see unfolding throughout our passage. Jesus is our judge who willingly submits himself to the cross. And, and Jesus puts himself in our place, though he was innocent. What difference does that make? You know, I, I think as we enter this time of Easter and we look at these familiar passages of, of Jesus on his way to the cross, it's, it's easy to, to hear this information and we know perhaps that, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for me. He died in my place and for my sin. But, but I want to press home and ask, what difference does that make in your life? Maybe, maybe you don't know Jesus and you're hearing this for the first time. I, I hope your eyes are, are open and your heart is beating going, I want to follow that. I want to follow Jesus, who though he could condemn me, was condemned for me. Though he was innocent, he took my place on the cross. Do you see God's love this morning? Come to him. Give your life to him. Turn, turn from living your own way and trust in him. You can do it today. Let us help you. Reach out and let us know that you're, you're wanting to make that decision. You want to talk more about what it means to follow Jesus. And church family, do you, do you take for granted what you know about Jesus? Do you understand Jesus but fail to always apply it to your life? What about times when things are stressful and, and difficult and things are out of place and you're out of sync? Are you, are you really living and trusting in who Jesus is, like right now? I mean, I, I know for me, um, over these last two weeks, everything has been so different. And, and there's these two kind of competing Dynamics. There's this part of me that gets overwhelmed and I, I fail to trust God in the midst of that. And then there's this part of me that's so overwhelmed that I know I have nowhere else to turn but to God. 
I want for us to do the latter. I want myself to do more of the latter. It's, it's not enough for us merely to understand that Jesus took our place, though he was innocent and though he could judge us, he willingly submitted to the cross. We must, we must apply that to our lives personally. We must make Jesus's work on the cross personal. So, so I, I want to maybe unpack this in a way that's a little bit more structured. We've been talking about some of these ideas and themes over the last few weeks. I want to provide a little mini crash course on, on some theology to understand what Jesus's work on the cross means for us. And I want to do it in, in three categories. And the first is this, justification. Jesus's work on the cross means for us our justification which if you could sum it up, means our freedom from sin's penalty. Justification is what happens when you put your trust in Jesus. It's an instant experience. The moment we put our trust in Jesus, we are made right with God. Our sin is forgiven. But it's not just that Jesus forgives your sin and you have a blank slate and you know you got to try your best not to mess it up. No, it's not that at all. Jesus forgives our sin and then gives to us his righteousness. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see us and our sin, but he sees Jesus and his righteousness. It's not just that our past is clean, but that God has counted the righteousness of Christ to our behalf. What good news is that? When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his beloved son, and he calls us his sons and daughters. God the Father, looking upon you, seeing the righteousness of Jesus. That's the good news of justification. The guilt of sin doesn't hang over you anymore. It doesn't hang over me anymore. You know, I think about this passage where Jesus is accused by the religious leaders. I think sometimes about sin, how it rears its head and it accuses us. It reminds us of what we've done. Sin that we've turned away from. Sin that we've said no to. But it, yet it rears its head and it says, you remember what you did? You, you haven't always kept your word. You haven't always walked in obedience. It's pointless. Just give in. Do what you want. Why mess with this? When those accusations come, you can, remi- you can be reminded that Jesus was accused for you and still went to the cross on your behalf. Perhaps the accusations are right, but you know what? The accusations don't stick anymore because when Jesus sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. I think about right now where we find ourselves. I think we're all tempted right now to feel a little bit kind of overwhelmed, maybe even discouraged. Sometimes you get to the end of your day and you feel like a failure. I know I've, I've had that experience a few times this week. I get to the end of my day and I haven't accomplished half of what I thought I would and things didn't pan out the way that I wanted. Um, maybe... For our parents who are schooling their kids at home right now, you, you don't know if your kids are learning anything. You're beat down by all the changes. You're, you're fighting uphill, it seems. You've got to plan three steps ahead no matter what you want to do. In fact, I heard somebody say, because of the coronavirus, we now only have three days in a week. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Like We're unsure of what day it, it even is. Uh, it's just this overwhelming sense of, of discouragement. And, and no doubt we, we may face some discouragement because of sin, but I, but I just want to remind you of who you are and, and who God sees you as. I can't give you pointers necessarily on how to best work, school your kids, or accomplish what you need, though I wish I, I had some, some tips for you. Uh, I'm sure if you look online, somebody has given you some tips. Uh, some company has an email in your inbox about how to help you uh, with these things. 
But the one thing I can do is, is hold out to you how God views you because of justification. He's satisfied. Jesus in your place is enough. Do you view yourself that way? Do you, do you understand that God doesn't look at you on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of Christ's perfect work for you? That's what defines you. And so we have to ask, are we letting God's view of us define our view of ourselves? Jesus in our place. That's enough in God's eyes. Rest in that this week. The cross and justification offers to us a word of assurance. It offers to us a word of assurance regarding our standing before God. Rest in that assurance this week that you're free from the penalty of sin. But the, the work of the cross also means for us our sanctification, our, our freedom from sin's power. You'll see behind me the, the freedom that we have from sin's power and sanctification. And sanctification, we understand that we put sin to death through the power of the cross, that because Jesus died for us, the, the guilt of sin has been removed and the power of sin has been broken. And, and as a follower of Christ, we actually have God's Spirit who dwells within us, enabling us to follow God, to walk in obedience. So when, when we submit our lives to Christ, we, we are, are made right with Him, given a new status, justified, righteous in His sight. And because of this status, God has set us apart and He's calling us to live a life that's set apart for Him, that's defined by holiness, that's defined by the transforming work of the cross. So when we come to know Christ, He gives us new desires, new, new rhythms in our life, like reading the Bible and prayer and gathering with the local church. And, and the, the, really the battle of sanctification is that sometimes our new desires come into contact with our old desires. And, and there's this conflict of what we're going to give into. And in the past, before Christ, if you don't know Jesus, you have no hope. You're going to give into your sinful desires right now or, or pretty soon. But because of Christ, we, we actually can say no to ungodliness and, and sinfulness and say yes to God. Because we're forgiven through the cross and God's spirits at work within us, we can say no to sin and yes to godliness. So right now, I, I know in our present circumstances, it's easy for us as we're out of our normal rhythms to allow sin to creep in. I, I, I know I, I kind of mentioned this uh, even last week when you think about being together in your home, perhaps with family or roommates, put sinners together in the same house, plenty of opportunity to sin against each other. Take away our normal rhythms, even responsibilities, weighed down with a little bit of discouragement and a little boredom. Perhaps we find ourselves looking and listening to things that, that are leading our hearts astray and further from God. But perhaps we, we find ourselves with envy or bitterness or allowing worry to take root in our hearts. You see, sanctification speaks to us a word of purpose regarding our pursuit as followers of Christ. We, we, have, we have this assurance that we belong to God in justification, but we have this purpose in our sanctification that says, as a follower of Christ, your, your purpose is to become more and more like Jesus. So are you putting sin to death in your life by the power of the cross? That's what sanctification calls us to. So our sanctification speaks to us a word of purpose, defining our pursuit as a follower of Christ. And then finally, we see glorification, which is the freedom from sin's presence. And I could say it this way, because Jesus was condemned on the cross in our place, we have full confidence that one day when we stand before him, 
that we won't be condemned, but we'll be welcomed in. What good news is that? That we will experience eternal life with God just as He redeemed us to enjoy. So in that day, our salvation will be complete and we'll experience it in its fullness, free not only from sin's uh, power and sin's guilt, but free from sin's presence, living life as God intended us to live. Glorification speaks to us a word of hope regarding our expectation of what's to come. We need hope regarding what's to come when we're uncertain of what's going on around us. See, practically, the, the work of the cross means that, that we have freedom from sin's guilt. We're free. Rest in the freedom that God has provided from sin's guilt. We, we also have this purpose to fight against sin and its power in our lives. Sin power is broken and we are free to live in obedience to God. But then we have this hope that one day we'll be free from sin's presence not only our sinful desires, but the sinful, broken world in which we live, in which viruses ravage our lives. What hope there is in our glorification. So, how do you get this in daily life? I think that's the question I've been asking myself. We're saying it's important not only to know who Jesus is, but to know what it means for our lives personally. I think the best thing I could say is that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. This concept has been made popular by an author named Jerry Bridges who passed away just a few years ago. But, but he says to preach the gospel to yourself means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith and his shed blood and righteous life. Preaching the gospel to yourself is reminding yourself of what we talked about in our passage that Jesus was our judge, but he willingly submitted to the cross, that, that Jesus took our place, though he was innocent. It means that you appropriate by faith the fact that Jesus has satisfied God's demand against us, that He's taken our place and, and, and taken God's judgment against our sin. It's no longer directed towards us. Jesus took it upon Himself. But, but I love how Jerry Bridges unpacks what, uh, what it means to preach the gospel to yourself in his book, Respectable Sins. I just want to read you kind of how he thought about preaching the gospel to himself in everyday life. And, and we'll close with this. Since the gospel is only for sinners, he says, I begin each day with the realization that despite me being a saint, me being a follower of Christ, I still sin every day in word, deed, and motive. And, and boy, that's true for us too, isn't it? Though, though we, we are a follower of Christ, sin still rears its head in our lives every day, especially as we boil it down not only to what we say and do, but also even the motives of our heart. If I'm aware of any of these subtle or not so subtle sins in my life, Bridges says, I, I immediately acknowledge those to God. That's what repentance, daily repentance looks like. God, where do I see sin in my life? And, and let me confess it and turn away from it. And then he says, sometimes if I'm not even conscious of sin, I still know that I haven't loved God and loved others as I should. I know that I've, I've fallen short. So I repent of those sins. And then I try to apply, he says, specific scriptures that assure me of God's forgiveness to those sins I've confessed. He says, I, I take uh, promises from Scripture that speak to God's forgiveness in my life, and, and I say to God the, the words of those passages that, that reflect my hope that my right standing with Him is based on Him taking my place in Jesus. He, he says, I, I use Scriptures like this. Here are some of the Scriptures I preach to myself. Psalm 103, uh, verse 12. You'll see these screens on these verses on the screen. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. 
what hope and confidence we can have that our sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, I am he who blots out transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. He doesn't remember our sins, not because he forgets, but because he chooses not to hold them against us. You know why he can't hold them against us? Because of the cross. Jesus took our place, therefore God doesn't hold our sins against us because he held them against Jesus in our place. In Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh God, thank you that you put the, my sin, my iniquity on Jesus. I, I continually go astray. I can feel it even in my heart. God, forgive me and thank you that Jesus took my place. Romans 4, 7 through 8, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. God, thank you for not counting your sin against me. Let this verse be on your mind and your heart. Romans 8, 1. Here's a verse you can hold on to this week as you preach the gospel to yourself. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the good news of our justification. We're made right with God. Sin's guilt is no more. And now we're free to walk in obedience, even free from sin's power. Here's a challenge for you this week. Find some scriptures that help you preach the gospel to yourself. Find some scriptures that help you take God's word and, and, and remind yourself of the gospel. He's, Bridges ends, he says, whatever scriptures we use to assure us of God's forgiveness, we must realize that whether the passage explicitly states it or not, the only basis for God's forgiveness is the blood of Christ shed on the cross for us. Jesus in my place. That's the message. Jesus in my place. Can you say that for yourself? Can you say that you know Jesus took your sin upon himself? He took your place on the cross and that you're trusting in him today for your salvation. If you can, I pray that you will, that you'll respond and allow us to talk with you more about that. But to my church family, can you say this? Are you reminding yourself of this day by day? Are you letting it change the way you view yourself and the way you live? So simple and yet so profound. Jesus in my place. Let's live in the freedom of that truth this week. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time. God, thank you for, for the truth of, of who Jesus is as, as the one who could condemn us as our judge but went to the cross on our behalf, as the one who is innocent and yet stood guilty in our place so that we might be made right with you. We might be emboldened and, and free to fight sin and to, to run after you. And, and we have the hope, God, that our future is secure. God, I pray that you would help us not just to, to understand truths about Jesus, but for the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus to change us and to change us every day as we continually come back to you. God, in the midst of this time that we find ourselves in, we don't need more suggestions and uh, life hacks about how to do this or that. We need more of you. We need fresh eyes to see you. And we need you to grip us and change us. Lord, do that in us and through us this week. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.